William Bennett, who many of you know is a former Secretary of Education, said years ago, I submit to you that the real crisis of our time is spiritual. What afflicts us is the corruption of the heart and a turning away of the soul. How's that for some heavy-duty words? Nothing has been more consequential in this societal demise than large segments of American society privately turning away from God. And to turn things around, there must come a widespread personal spiritual renewal. Did you catch the power of that statement? Those statements? Sometimes when people speak like that, they sling an arrow so sharply and hit the target so accurately that you almost don't know you've been pierced. He says, and by the way, I believe this is aimed as much at those who profess to be Christians and religious as those who don't. What afflicts us is a corruption of the heart and a turning away of the soul. That statement hits me. It hits me hard because it sounds so deliberate, it sounds so intentional, what we do. Spiritual deterioration is not something then that happens innocently while we stand by oblivious to our own condition. We're all convicted by the hard truth of this statement. The erosion of our spiritual life is the result of calculated corruption and the consequence of a conscious turning away. Let me say that again. The erosion of our spiritual life is the result of calculated corruption and the consequence of a conscious turning away. You buy that? That's going to create some major discussion in our small groups this week, I have a feeling. That will incite some incredible Tension. Fact is, is we make the choices. And no amount of rationalization can change that fact. When Jesus charged the Apostle John to write to the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, his complaint against that church was that they had left their first love. And the Greek there is not hard to understand. It's, it means to leave, to leave alone, to forsake, to neglect. So many people misquote the Lord and contend that this church had lost their first love. And you've heard me make a case for this on many occasions. Don't miss what the Lord is saying here in Revelation chapter 2. Losing something implies that it was an accident. I mean, you forgot about it. You dropped it accidentally. You misplaced something. You lost track of it. Forsaking something on the other hand, indicates intentional activity, doesn't it? There's a world of difference between losing your wife in a crowd of people or leaving her for another woman, isn't there? One of my sons was notorious for losing things when he was a teen, clothing, books, watches, you name it. Once during something, a halftime at a football game, I gave him a $10 bill to get something at the French fry booth. And um, between the time he left the bleachers and ordered the food, a total of about 25 yards, he lost the money. Somehow he had dropped it along the way. Now that's understandable. It was a tad disappointing to me, 
but I couldn't be mad really at him because it was an accident. It would have been a whole different story, however, if after he left me, he crumpled that thing up and threw it out on the football field. Last week, I did an overview of the book of Malachi, a sneak preview, so to speak, and through deeper study, it becomes clear that the people of his day had basically left their first love. They didn't lose it, they left it. Spiritual erosion had eaten away at the nation to the point where the hearts of the leaders were corrupt and the souls of the people were actually turned away. Now the parallels that can be drawn between Malachi's day and our own are just too astounding to ignore. Many of us would have to admit that we are well acquainted with people at one point or another in our lives close to us who have either left their first love or are in the process of doing it. Some of us would even have to admit that we might be struggling with the same choice. Some of us are tired of what seems like religious routine. We're exasperated with ministry, frustrated with people, cynical about the church, and we find ourselves questioning God a lot of the time. We may discover that we're a little lethargic about spiritual things, which is resulting in a tranquilized faith. In fact, we may be so desperately in want of relief from this treadmill that we begin to consciously turn from God and towards something, rather, we know that is damaging but gives us an instant thrill. And soon we find that our joy is seeping from our souls and we embrace the quickest fix we can find. And if someone dare try to help us or so-called lovingly confront us, well... We nail them to the wall. If you're in that spot, or if your heart is breaking for someone else who is, again, take a moment and pray. Pray that God would open you up to what he wants to tell you today through the prophet Malachi. Turn to Malachi 1 in your Bibles. Malachi 1. We're going to look at the first five verses. And his message, Malachi's message, is, is very straightforward. When religious deterioration happens in our lives, radical renovation must occur in our hearts. Simply put, our relationship with God needs to be redefined. Sometimes the most important thing that a person who has turned away from the things of God needs is a reminder that God loves them. Simple, right? Not always. It's not always easy to remind someone in the midst of sin and pain that God loves them. They don't want to hear it. And it was no picnic for Malachi either. I'd classify it, to borrow a phrase, as a bold move. Malachi's message was a bold move. Message And it started with three of the boldest words in our English language. What the people of the prophet's day needed to hear. What most people today need to hear and to be reminded of is contained in three simple but bold words from the Lord. I love you. And that's how Malachi starts here 
in verse 2, I have loved you. And I told you last week that grammatically that can be translated, I love you. You see, God's love is a bold kind of love. As someone has said, to the extent that we have responded, to the extent that we have surrendered, made the leap and cried out, I believe in the love of Jesus Christ for me, our lives are transformed. Only to that extent. Only when our minds are realigned to the bold love that God has for us will our hearts become redirected toward a different way of living, a God-honoring way of living. Our attitudes, our thoughts, our behaviors, our motives and our relationships will become radically changed when our minds become radically renewed. Read Romans 12, 2, and you'll find that to be true. So today, as we sit in the presence of God and each other, I would like to take the time to discover just what the bold love of God is like. So let's jump right in. Number one, I think God's bold love is undeniable love. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord. Undeniable love. God literally is saying, I love you. Talk about bold love. In no other religion on the face of the earth do we find such intimate and personal communication from God. There's no hidden meaning in the Hebrew word here. The word love in Hebrew is much like the word love in English. It means to have a deep affection for, to have an ardent inclination towards someone or something with tenderness and intense affection. In the Old Testament, the word is used on numerous occasions to describe the deep delight and intimacy of personal affection. Genesis 22.2, for example, it's used to describe Abraham's intense love for Isaac, his only son, which emphasizes the extreme sacrifice that Abraham was willing to make to obey the Lord when the Lord said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, it says, and sacrifice him. In Leviticus 19, verses 18 and 34, it describes the personal and practical responsibility that we have toward our neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself, it says. In Deuteronomy 6.5, this kind of love, this word here, is the basis of our relationship with an absolute God. The great commandment of the Old Testament is to love the Lord absolutely, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? One of the great tragedies of American life is the fact that so many American men, in particular, perhaps a majority, choke on the words, I love you. I think that's especially true here in the Northeast, don't you? Frozen chosen, so to speak. <laughs> Many men are like that old Mainer, married 40 years, who remarked, I love my wife so much I can just hardly keep from telling her. <laughs> I mean, really, to come right out and say to someone, I love you, is a bold move, isn't it? especially when it involves another guy, if you're a guy. Guys, what was the last time you told your dad, I love you? Or your grown son? 
or your best friend. Another great American tragedy is when people say it so flippantly that it means nothing anymore. But God is not like us. He tells us boldly and he means it sincerely. By the, by the way, this verse isn't the first place in the Bible where God boldly de declares his love for his people. Isaiah 43, 4 says, Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Jeremiah 31, 3 says, The Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I've drawn you with loving kindness. Love is at the heart of God's covenant relationship with his people. And if that was that apparent in the Old Testament, how much more is it declared for us in the New Testament? Read scriptures like 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. John 3, 16, for an example. John 15, 13, and Romans 5, 8. I'm just mentioning those to you. If you're taking notes, you can look them up on your own. But I want to highlight this one, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. And I want you to see it in the message. I like how this is paraphrased. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. So you like the way that that's put there, that, that paraphrase? These bold statements of God's bold love ought to give us a renewed understanding of God's true nature as our Father. As George Malone wrote, he is not a frustrated drill sergeant who is always barking out orders. He's not an anxious mother always demanding perfection without ever assuring us that we're loved. God, when he speaks to us, always speaks in the indicative before moving to the imperative. Simply stated, God always speaks to us in terms of his forgiveness, his power and acceptance, help and love before he ever makes demands on us. I wonder if you find that to be true. That's really important because here in Malachi, the people are reminded of the gospel of God's love before they are confronted with the reality of their sin. Our hearts are going to be renovated and moved into a deeper, more vital relationship with the Lord. Then the first thing we need to be reminded of is of how much God loves us. It's a bold kind of love, and he comes right out, and he boldly proclaims it. But bold love is often unbelievable love. That's the second thing I want you to see here. Verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. People of Malachi's day had slipped so far down the spiritual slope of erosion that even in the face of God's assurance that he loved them, they wouldn't even accept it. They immediately threw it back into his face. Listen to the way the living Bible renders this passage. I have loved you very deeply, says the Lord, but you retort, really? When was this? 
Now, the response is pretty astounding, yet we can understand it when you try to tell people today that God loves them. You know what they do? They look sarcastically at you and they reply, yeah, right. Have you seen the latest news report? Do you know what's happened to me lately? How can you say that God loves me? The general attitude is that God has forgotten all about them. And the people hear the same outlook. And you know what's harder than to try to get a non-believer to believe that God loves them? It's to try to get a Christian who has drifted away from God to believe that God loves them. Really hard. That's what this people had for an outlook. This God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life theology does, just doesn't grab me, is what they're saying. We're tired of being promised deliverance. We're sick of serving a God we can't see. We need to feel loved. We need to have some kind of tangible, concrete evidence that God has not abandoned me. Ever feel like that? We can relate to that. Because we can't touch God or see Him, we often want kind of a concrete proof to assure us that we're not making the whole concept of God's love up. I read a quote this week in a magazine by Darlene Check, the worship leader from Hillsong, where actually church in Australia, Sydney, Australia, where Ben is going right now, actually. She said, we need a continued revelation on the great love of God and not just his love for others, but his love for us. I'll never forget the sense of being overwhelmed by God's love on the day I personally encountered Christ. I was made alive by divine fire. She says, it's all about love. The words of God says this, the entire law is summed up in one single command, love your neighbor as yourself. And of course, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world Without love, life is just existence. A worship song without love is just music. Relationships without love are simply acquaintances. A congregation without love is just a club. A church worship team without love is just a band. A song without love is just a jingle. A problem tackled without love ends in war. A pursuit of Christ without love ends in religion. A gaining of wealth without love ends in greed. Love is the key ingredient. Good words. God loves you enough to preserve the message right here in the writings of Malachi and others. God's bold love is undeniable but if it's unbelievable to you, then you need to be reminded also, thirdly, that God's love is unconditional love. God's bold love is unconditional love. Listen to the words. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness." 
Though Edom says we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down and men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. This is a tough text. This is where I can find myself at a loss for words. The first thing that Malachi does here is to point out the fact that God's love for them was not predicated upon what they did or did not do for the Lord. That's what he's getting at. His choice of them as a privileged people was unsolicited. It was unmerited. It was merely a matter of his sovereign decision. Lest they think that they somehow had received God's mercy because of some great quality inherent within them, Malachi brought them back down to earth by pointing out the fact that as a nation, they were the object of God's love because of his sovereign and gracious choice, period. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I'd like you to look at this. And verses 6 through 10. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 10. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments, but repays those who hate him to their faces. To destroy them, he will not delay with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. The ultimate example of this relationship that God had or this sovereign choice relationship was couched in the history of their ancestors, Esau and Jacob. By natural birthright, you remember, Esau, being the older twin and the firstborn, should have inherited the blessing from his father and become the principal heir. But by divine choice, election is the theological term, Jacob was the one favored by God. He inherited the blessing. Through Jacob, God's chosen people would endure. And if you want to read more about that, go to Genesis 25, 26, and 27. It's all there. And actually, the thread moves throughout the entire scriptures. God's bold love for his people is unconditional. It is simply by grace. It is undeserved. It is unearned. There's nothing we can do to cause God or to make God love us. We can't bribe him with money. We can't seduce him with affection. We can't sucker him in with deathbed deals or profound promises or crocodile tears. It doesn't work that way. His love for us is absolutely and exclusively by his sovereign choice. You believe that? Not so convinced, are you? 
It's not conditioned by our worthiness or by our good looks or by our incredibly wonderful deeds. Because to be honest and thoroughly biblical with you, our so-called righteous deeds are not as righteous as we think. No one is righteous outside of a relationship with Christ. Not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 10 states that very clearly. Jacob was no more righteous in the womb than Esau. There was nothing more lovable about Jacob to God than Esau. The characters of the babies in the womb had nothing to do with God's choice. The fact is that God simply chose Jacob to carry on the line through which the Messiah would eventually come. Theologically, that's called, I just told you, what is it? Election. And it creates all kinds of problems in our minds. Although actually when you get right down to the bottom of it, it really shouldn't, should it? Are we to limit God? If God is God and we are not, who are we to have God answer to us in our view? Is he dependent upon our good or bad actions to make his decisions? The fact that God has chosen to pour out his love on us and save us and that others do not enter into that saving relationship with him is cause rather to make us fall down on our faces in amazement at his inconceivable grace toward us because not one of us deserves it. Not one of us deserves it. But don't misunderstand the doctrine of election. In Genesis, the account of God's sovereign choice of Jacob in no way implies the condemnation of Esau. Okay, I want you to think about that. Just because God chose Jacob does not imply that he chose Esau to be condemned. Both were born in sin. Both were disobedient by nature. Both were equally undeserving. The language is not comparative in that God loved Jacob more than Esau. It is a statement indicating solely God's sovereign choice from whom the Messiah would come. Now, remember that the statement in Malachi here that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau was written looking back at the history of the two. Genesis 25 neither states nor implies any sovereign hatred of one and love for the other. In Genesis 25, it's just a matter of choice as to who the descendants would come through. The fact is, is that although Jacob deceitfully attained the blessing of the inheritance, God had already chosen him to be the recipient anyway. He would have gotten it even if he had not manipulated the situation. Now, God did not condone Jacob's sin of deceit. In fact, later, it brought all kinds of pain and problems to his life. But eventually, Jacob did follow the Lord and obeyed the Lord. And that's the difference. Because Esau and his descendants, on the other hand, continued in unbelief 
and rebellion against God and were judged severely for their antagonism toward Israel. Verse 3. I have made his mountains, meaning Esau, a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says we've been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. What an incredible contrast. Because Esau persisted in his sin, the descendants of Esau would follow suit and be judged severely. Their land is called the wicked territory, as opposed to the land of Judah, which is called by Zechariah, Take a guess what that's called. Still called that today. The Holy Land. What a contrast. The Holy Land and the wicked territory. Because of Edom's lack of repentance, they will be known as, quote, the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever, which it says right here. And literally the term means to foam at the mouth. That's quite... Serious, quite descriptive. God's wrath upon Esau and his descendants and the nation known as Edom was not without warrant. The, the prophet Obadiah, by the way, details the violence of Edom toward Israel. And in verse 10 of Obadiah, we find the charge upon which Malachi's words are built. This is what verse 10 of Obadiah says, Because of violence toward your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame, and you will be cut off forever. You see, God's sovereignty never dispels man's responsibility. Even though God, in his sovereignty, chose Jacob to be the one through whom the nation would utterly come from, both Jacob and Esau were both held responsible to respond to God in obedience. God's hatred of Esau, as it's stated here, is the result of God's hatred of Esau's sin, which he could never bring himself to truly repent of. Friends, this is so incredibly important to grasp. I literally tremble inside when I hear a Christian tell me that they know that what they're doing is absolutely wrong and against what God has revealed. They know they're living sinfully. They admit it. And they have no intention of changing their behavior. They literally even say it. You know how dangerous that line of thinking is? When a heart gets that callous toward God, it's more than just sinning against God's law. It's sinning against God's love. And do you realize what a precious gift His love is? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, 
knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. If people, especially Christians, who are the objects of God's bold, undeniable, unbelievable, and unconditional love refuse to give up their sin, in effect what they're saying is that their sin is more precious to them than Christ himself. God's ultimate gift of love. That is exactly what J.R.R. Tolkien was illustrating when he created Gollum in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. You've seen what the ring did to him, haven't you? What will your ring do to you? What is your precious? Because I challenge you. Read Hebrews chapter 12 this week and ask God to reveal to you the precious that he wants you to be rid of. Because friends, our God, it says in Hebrews 12, 29, is a consuming fire. God is opposed to and separates himself from those who refuse the offer of his grace and stubbornly continue in their practice of sin. The expression we often hear that God hates the sin but loves the sinner is absolutely true. But when sin permeates the life of a person to the point of total rejection of God, and if that sinner dies in that state of rejection, then it is the sinner which becomes the object of God's wrath. Not just the sin. God cannot look approvingly upon sin, Habakkuk said. In chapter 1, verse 13. So God's elected love by no means implies that certain people are elected to be the objects of his hate. All of us have sinned and all of us fall short of the glory of, his, of God. All of us are alienated from God before we come to faith. But all of us have the same offer of the gift of life by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what makes the concept of God's grace so utterly incredible. You know, if someone were to say to me, Pastor Russ, I have a major problem with Malachi chapter 1 and verse 3, where God says, Esau I have hated, I'd have to respond, first of all, by saying, yeah, that is a problem. But also, in the words of Dr. A.C. Gabeline, the gifted Hebrew Christian leader, who replied to the same question with these words, he says, I have a greater problem with Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, where God says, Jacob, I have loved. Or even more perplexing is where God says, I have loved you. Or me. Go a little deeper this week and study Romans chapter 9 to get some perspective on this. Probably not going to make you feel any better about the situation. 
And frankly, you know, there are script, these are tough scriptures. And it's very difficult for me to sit here and deal with them. And hopefully you walk out of here feeling great about them. But I believe God has so given us his word that we need to depend upon his Holy Spirit for understanding. And we need to accept them by faith, even though we may not have full understanding. And it should cause us, who know Jesus Christ, as I said earlier, to worship him with a, with a whole heart because of the great grace and gift that he's bestowed upon us. How can we not be overcome with gratitude when we think about the gift that we've been given? Unspeakable joy and a willingness to do whatever he wants us to do. How can we not love every minute of living for him? Really. Because we get that way, I do. But I have to remember what it's all about. How can we not enjoy serving him? The scripture says the joy of the Lord is your strength. If you find yourself weak in the faith, maybe you don't have the full joy that you need by knowing what Christ has really done for you. If we become so indifferent to God's love for us that we challenge him, make unreasonable demands of him, loathe our service to him, renege on our original commitment to him, and change the terms of the contract, we need a good dose of reminder, I think. That's what we're getting in Malachi here. A reminder of the major league grace that we have received. Max Lucado, in his book, The Grip of Grace, writes about a real, a perfect illustration of this. Back in 95, the spring of 95, for a few weeks, professional baseball, he writes, was a different game. The million-dollar arms were at home. The Cadillac bats were in the rack. The contracted players were negotiating for more money. The owners determined to start the season, threw the gate open to almost anybody who knew how to scoop up a grounder or run out a bunt. These weren't minor leaguers. The minor leagues were also on strike. These were fellows who went from coaching Little League one week to wearing a Red Sox uniform the next. Maybe some of you remember that time. The games weren't fancy, mind you. Line drives rarely reached the outfield. One manager said his pitchers threw the ball so slowly the radar gun couldn't even clock them. A fan would shell a dozen peanuts in the time it took to relay a throw from the outfield. The players huffed and puffed more than the little engine that could, he says. But my, did the players have fun. The diamond was studded with guys who played the game for the love of the game. When the coach said run, they ran. When they needed a, he needed a volunteer to shag flies, a dozen hands went up. They arrived before the park was opened, greasing their gloves and cleaning their cleats. When it was time to go home, they stayed until the grounds crew threw them off the field. They thanked the attendants for washing their uniforms. They thanked the caterers for the food. They thanked the fans for paying the dollars to watch. The line of players willing to sign autographs was longer than the line of fans wanting them. 
These guys didn't see themselves as a blessing to baseball, but baseball as a blessing to them. Think about that. They didn't expect luxury. They were surprised by it. They didn't demand more playtime. They were thrilled to play at all. It was baseball again. In Cincinnati, the general manager stepped out onto the field and applauded the fans for coming. The Phillies gave away free hot dogs and sodas. In the trade of the year, the Cleveland Indians gave five players to the Cincinnati Reds for free. It wasn't classy. You missed the three-run homers and frozen rope pickoffs, but that was forgiven for the pure joy of seeing some guys play who really enjoyed the game. What made them so special? Simple. They were living a life they didn't deserve. These guys didn't make it to the big leagues on skill. They made it on luck. They weren't picked because they were good. They were picked because they were willing. And they knew it. Not one time did you read an article in the newspaper or magazine about the replacement players arguing over poor pay. He says, I did read a story about a fellow who offered 100 grand if some owner would sign him. But there was no jockeying for position, no second guessing the management, no strikes, no lockouts, no walkouts. These guys didn't even complain that their names weren't stitched on their jerseys. They were just happy to be on the team. And then he says this, shouldn't we be as well? Aren't we a lot like these players? If the first four chapters of Romans tells us anything, they tell us we are living a life that we don't deserve. We are good enough to get picked, but look at us suited up and ready to play. We aren't skillful enough to make the community softball league, but our names are on the greatest roster in all of history. The Lamb's Book of Life. Do we deserve to be here? No. But would we trade the privilege? Not for the world. For if Paul's proclamation is true, God's grace has placed us on a dream team beyond imagination. Our past is pardoned. Our future is secure. So in verse 5, God writes through Malachi that God's love is not just bold love, undeniable love, sometimes unbelievable love and unconditional love, but God's bold love is unlimited love. Your eyes will see this, Malachi says, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the borders of Israel. See, the people of Malachi's day had grown so weak in their relationship with God that they had walked so far away that they couldn't discern the pattern of his love that was blatant throughout all of their history. They're missing the whole point of why they had gone into captivity in the first place. Instead of praising him for his grace, they complained about his lack of love. Instead of reviving their worship, they were repulsed by the monotony of their responsibilities. And instead of responding in humility, they removed themselves from his intimacy, all because they doubted God's love for them. 
And all they had to do was remember the promise. Remember the promise that nothing could separate them from God's love. Their promised destiny, as opposed to Edom's future, should have been enough proof. And you know what? It continues today. All this stuff that's going on in the Gaza Strip, in the Middle East, is a direct result of the Jacob and Esau conflict. If there's any proof that this word of God is true, the current headlines in the Middle East should be it. The prophet says, open your eyes, look around, and one day you'll see that the Lord's power is magnified even beyond the borders of Israel. And this will be the conclusive answer to your own question. How have you loved us? So, are you questioning God's love for you right now? You really believe it? Like the prophet says, open your eyes and look around. In just three months, almost to the day from now, we will celebrate the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter. That is the boldest expression of God's undeniable love for you and me that there is. The whole essence of that week-long remembrance is bound up in the simple statement God makes here in Malachi 1. I love you. I have loved you. It's bold love. It's undeniable love. It's unconditional love. It's unlimited love. Believe it. And it goes beyond the borders of Israel into the recesses of your heart. It can forgive every sin that you've ever committed or ever will commit. Jesus is the absolute proof of God's love for you and me. He's the only precious I need. If you're looking for one true love and for true acceptance, there's only one place you need to look. It's to Jesus Christ. Because He can truly fulfill it. So let's pray. Father in heaven, you are an amazing, wonderful, gracious, merciful God who have poured out yourself into your Son, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might live. God in heaven, what an amazing, incredible gift that is. But we have become dull of hearing. And we need to be revived in our spirits. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and light a fire that would not be quenched in this place. And may we realize that the promise is true. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. If we have placed our faith and trust in Him. Cleanse us, Lord, by Your grace. Make us ready to receive it. For Jesus' sake, I pray.
Amen.